the Reverend Al is at it again. Never to be silent, never to be one to be outdone. If ever there is a benighted cause, if ever there is a low-life piece of crap who has somehow come to the end of his life uh, because of anyone who would try to enforce the law in the, at the hands of the police usually or at the hands of a good Samaritan in this case who was trying to save people from a mentally defective thug with a 42 arrest record, uh, then Al Sharpton will be there. And the other day here in New York was no exception. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of several easy ways. You can either go to the Google Play Store, the iTunes App Store, and simply search out uh, the Jamie Dury Show uh, by way of downloading the free Podbean app available in either of those two locations, and you can subscribe to the Jamie Dury Show that way, or you can use the native podcast aggregator app on your Apple or Android device and simply search out and subscribe to the Jamie Dury Show. Either way, you'll be able to leave comments, reviews. We desperately need more of both, and you'll be able to follow, and you'll be notified whenever a new episode of the program is uploaded. So please do it. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends about us. Give us a five-star review. We try and give you a good show every time we set out to do a show. So please help us help you by helping to grow the show so we can get you information that isn't always readily available in other places. So the Reverend Al was in rare form. Uh, he did a eulogy the other day at uh, for Jordan Neely, and he was inflammatory as usual, making sweeping statements um, completely factually inaccurate, such as, when they choked Jordan, they put their arms around all of us. And then they make a big deal about him being a Michael Jackson impersonator uh, and wanted us all to pause and reflect, to think that if this man were white and he was an Elvis impersonator and three black men grabbed him uh, and put him down, would they be charged? Well, I would say, Reverend Al, uh, if the white Elvis impersonator was running around saying, I don't care. I don't care who I hurt. I'm going to hurt somebody. I don't care if I die. I don't care if I go to jail. I would say nothing would or should happen to them either. Al Sharpton, it's about time that people in the media start calling this man out for what he is. Al Sharpton is a thief. Al Sharpton is a criminal. Al Sharpton is a race baiter. Al Sharpton is a liar. He's lied on numerous occasions. He's been inflaming the public here in New York ever since the famed Tawana Brawley case, where he lied, where he was sued uh, by a prosecutor in Dutchess County after trashing his his name, a judgment awarded against him, which he never paid. He is reported to owe in excess of 3 or $4 million in back taxes. He was never pursued for that, and on the contrary, was a guest frequently at the White House when Obama occupied that storied building. And whenever there is a death, usually in police custody of a person of minority extraction, Al Sharpton can be reliably depended upon to show up 
and thrust himself in the spotlight. What most people don't know is that most of the time, he hasn't been invited. He just does it. And after he whips people into a frenzy, and after he uh, increases ostensibly the likelihood of the family recouping money from the relevant municipality in exchange for the person's death, he has his handout, his shakedown money, and demands payment for what he's done. This is the Reverend Al Sharpton. What kind of reverend he is, I do not know. But Al Sharpton is a piece of garbage. No one should be listening to anything he has to say. In fact, we should be looking to put the Reverend Al in jail. But let's look at the man he's defending, because this is a common thread here. Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely has 42 arrests. Very recently, he punched an elderly woman, I think she was 80-some-odd years old, so hard that he broke her nose and shattered her eye socket. And this is the man that we have to be worried about. Now look, I understand this man had trials and tribulations in his life. I'm not going to say he didn't have trials and tribulations in his life. He did not have an easy life. I think as a young child, he saw his mother killed. And I'm sure that that affected him in a very, very irreversible and permanent way. No question about it. But the fact that tragedy has befallen you in your life doesn't give you a license for the rest of your life to go on visiting tragedy in the lives of other people in perpetuity with no accountability. Jordan Neely has been doing this over and over and over and over and over again. If there is a failure here, if there is liability here, if there is guilt here, if there is responsibility here, and there is plenty to go around, none of it, none of it rests on the shoulders of the Marine, the ex-Marine, who helped subdue this man and tried to save uh, people from harm on that subway car. And anyone who travels in New York on the subway, whether you're left of center, right of center, knows just how terrible the subways have become. People have a right not to live in fear. They need those subways. They need to be able to get back and forth to work. And they shouldn't be preyed upon by thugs that are masquerading as Michael Jackson impersonators. Now, if there was blame to go around, like I said, you can blame the system for not keeping him in jail. You can blame the system for not keeping him in a mental institution. You can blame a lot of things and a lot of people. But the one person you shouldn't be blaming is the ex-Marine who jumped in there to try and help fellow New Yorkers. And obviously he wasn't the only person who did it because other people jumped in and held this man down too. So he wasn't the only one that viewed him as a threat. Quite frankly, I don't know how they're going to convict this person. If they do convict him, you can forget the right of self-defense in this country. And all of these bleeding hearts, AOC, Alejandro Ocasio-Cortez, complaining about what happened to Jordan Neely, where was he? Was she when Jordan Neely was punching an 80-year-old woman in the face and shattering her eye socket? 
Did she have anything to say about that then? Did Al Sharpton have anything to say about it then? All of this, as we learn that Black Lives Matter donations are falling sharply. Why are they falling? They're falling because people now believe it's a scam. They're falling because people are seeing that although the sentiment may be a nice sentiment, the organization is being run by people who are shaking it down, people who are using it as their own private piggy bank, embezzling money. $80 million went into BLM during 2020, the year of the George Floyd protest. That number went down to $9 million last year because people realize what's going on. They know what time it is. And just like with the shakedown artist Al Sharpton, where is the outrage from Black Lives Matter? Where is the outrage from Al Sharpton? Where is the outrage from AOC for the death of Ariana Preston? What's that? You don't know who Ariana Preston is? That's right. You probably don't. Because she wasn't important enough for Black Lives Matter to speak up about, for Al Sharpton to speak up about, for Alejandria Ocasio-Cortez to speak up about. Who is, or should I say, who was Ariana Preston? Ariana Preston was a beautiful 24-year-old girl who happened to be black. She was also a Chicago police officer. She was shot fatally about two weeks ago by four punk teenagers. Two 19-year-olds by the name of Joseph Brooks and Travell Breland, an 18-year-old by the name of Jaquan Buchanan, 18, and a 16-year-old boy whose name is not mentioned because he's 16, but he will be charged as an adult because of the severity of the crime. He can be charged as an adult. Now, I haven't seen pictures of these boys, but I venture to say, um, from the picture I saw of one of them, that they're probably all African-American. But the victim was African-American. So is this the standard now? If African-Americans are killed by other African-Americans, that's it? No hits, no runs, no errors, no foul? We don't talk about it? Her black life doesn't matter? Or is it just because she was a police officer that her black life doesn't matter? Now, this woman was on her way home from work. She just got off her shift. She was still in her uniform. She was standing in front of her home when these guys drove by, went back, and lit her up. She was off duty, on her way home, after an early shift on Saturday in the south side of Chicago. These 14 punks passed her in a sedan, circled back, and approached her as she stood in front of her house. They saw her in uniform. They knew she was a Chicago police officer. There's surveillance video of this from other residences in the area that shows three people getting out of the sedan. I assume the driver stayed in running towards Ariana Preston before several muzzle flashes are visible on the video and she falls to the ground. 
The attackers ran back to the sedan before one person returned to grab her gun. Now, if that isn't a clear-cut case of out-and-out murder, if that isn't a clear-cut case where there is no potential mitigating factor, this isn't something that's open to interpretation. What happened with Jordan Neely uh, is open to interpretation. There are going to be some people uh, who are too left of center and too blind to see the truth who are going to say, well, that shouldn't have done. It's a little extreme. And there were other people who are going to say, no, he was, he was a menace. He was a menace to others. He was a menace to himself. The people there had every right to restrain him in the, in the, uh, in the name of self-preservation. And now after the fact, armed with the information that we now know about what sort of danger he really was, given the criminal conduct he's engaged in in the past, you can't really say with the benefit of hindsight that it was a bad decision. But rolling up on a young woman, standing in full uniform, not doing anything to you, and just taking out guns and gunning her down, and running back, taking her gun and getting back to your car and fleeing and leaving her to die. There is no ambiguity there. There is no excuse there. Where is Al Sharpton? Piece of crap that he is. Where is AOC? Piece of crap that she is. And where are the BLM people? Piece of crap that they are. Protesting the death of this beautiful girl. Who did nothing but serve. And came home. At the end of a shift. To be gunned down. This is what the state of New York has become. And this is what they do all the time. George Floyd, another sterling citizen of the United States, a man who did five years for home invasion of Texas, during which he held a gun to the stomach of a pregnant woman. This is the guy we have to mourn when he was supposedly killed by the police. But there's one problem. You see, in this case, I know how the New York City medical examiner worked. And because there were um, allegations of the choking and the neck compression, they call it a homicide. They just All that means, when the medical examiner uses the word homicide, there's no criminal definition attached to it. It just means that he didn't die of natural causes. The efforts or the actions of other people may have contributed to his death. That doesn't mean it's a crime. Uh, but in the case of George Floyd, the medical examiner said, because I read the autopsy report, that the compression of his neck, the knee on the neck, that famous video that showed his knee on the neck, although it's indisputed that it took place, it had nothing to do with George Floyd's death. So therefore, if you can't get past causation, it doesn't matter that you can prove the conduct. You can't convict someone of murder. But I knew they were going to convict that officer in Minneapolis, because uh, Shogun, because the thugs were out for blood. They were going to burn the city down. So he was sacrificed. Now, it was not a good optic. I understand that. But in speaking with police officers from New York City who were active in the narcotics division back in the 1980s, uh, I learned, much to my surprise, that putting your knee on the neck uh, of a suspect was not that uncommon in the early 80s. And why? Because that was the time when AIDS became known to us, and it seemed as if it went from no, no one having it except a couple of people 
to all of a sudden everyone having it. People were dying. There was no cure. People weren't uh, absolutely 100% sure of how it was transmitted. And many of these intravenous drug users that were arrested by the narcotics uh, detectives and police officers in New York City would try and spit on the arresting officers. So when they put them down on the ground, very often they would put a knee on the neck to prevent them from turning their head around to spit on them because they did not want to get AIDS. And it's kind of hard not to blame them. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want somebody spitting on me if I thought it could give me an incurable disease. It would cause me to waste away and die like that. So these things are never what they appear to be, except in the case of the conduct of Al Sharpton. It's exactly what it appears to be. It's theater. It's a shakedown artist. It's what he's always been, and that's what it'll always be. Now, moving on, I wanted to cover something else. The bigger picture here is we're approaching a presidential election year. People are now announcing Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina has just announced. Ron DeSantis is expected to announce. Donald Trump has long since announced. And I've told you many times on this program, the only candidate, the only man who's going to make any difference is Donald Trump. We are living, as Tucker Carlson pointed out in the aftermath of his departure from Fox News, in essentially a one-party state. Yes, we have a Republican Party. Yes, we have a Democratic Party. But the Republicans haven't known how to be in the majority and to govern since the days of Ronald Reagan. Now, when you get a Republican administration, you do not get a reversal of fortunes, as I've said many times on this show. You do not get uh, a peeling back of the damage the Democrats have done or a restoration of American power and might. You simply get a slowing down of an inexorable decline. The only person who would make an effort to fight everything is Donald Trump. Now, Ron DeSantis, we're learning now, when he was in Congress, voted to make Puerto Rico a state, which would have given him two more senators and basically guaranteed the Democrats the majority in the Senate. He was also in favor of extending the retirement age. Not exactly 100% conservative. And he wouldn't even have won his initial election for governor if it were not for the endorsement of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is the man. He's the only one that will hold up to this kind of pressure. And the fact that he can't run again means that he has nothing to lose once he's in. He doesn't have to curry favor with anyone. And he can do whatever he needs to do to try and right this ship. Now, a lot of things have been coming to light in very, very recent days. One was the Durham report. Now, the Durham report makes very, very clear exactly what happened and how the government of this country was weaponized against Donald Trump. And everything that I have told you on this program of how everything they accused Trump of doing, everything they accused Trump of being, a Russian asset, doing this, doing that, they themselves did. Trump did none of it. None of it. None of it. I'll say it again for emphasis. We have here 
a little disappointment in the Durham report. I'm disappointed that he didn't do more to prosecute more people. But I guess after losing those first two trials, which should have been slam dunked, he knew that the system was just not going to convict anyone that was accused of doing anything against Donald Trump. But let me read some pull quotes from this article where Cash Patel, used to work for Trump, breaks down the Durham report. The Clinton campaign, we know for a fact now that all of this stuff, Christopher Steele dossier, was all fabricated. All fabricated, paid for by the Clinton campaign. Trump was never a Russian asset. That's the first part of it. And the second part was the Department of Justice and the FBI picking up on this and then trying to present it to the FISA court as legitimate intelligence. So campaign fabricated information from the opposition is now taken by the FBI and misrepresented to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act court as legitimate intel information, and that should serve as the basis for a warrant. And we now know that that's all they relied on to get that warrant. And they used that warrant specifically to spy on Carter Page, who was a Trump campaign advisor. But as Patel points out, while the warrant targeted Page, its one-hop provision potentially allowed for surveillance of the entire campaign. The FISA warrant, quote, was basically for a Trump campaign participant, Carter Page, specifically, not Trump himself. And what that allowed, because of the nature of these FISA warrants, it allowed kind of a one-hop away. So basically, there was surveillance on the entire campaign. By doing this, the FBI and the DOJ acted as Russian assets in advance of the 2016 election, referring to a claim that challenges the once prevailing narrative surrounding the Trump-Russia collusion allegations, the article goes on to say. Quote, turns out the only Russian assets were the FBI and the DOJ. The underpinnings of this report are devastating to the FBI and the DOJ. And indeed they are. The FBI broke the law. On more than one occasion, they committed perjury. They defrauded the FISA court. It is unfathomable to me that such a thing could happen in the United States. All of these actors, Peter Strzok, James Comey, the former director of the FBI, they all should have been subpoenaed before that grand jury. They all should have been indicted. They all should have been tried and convicted. James Comey and Peter Strzok in particular. Peter Strzok actively acted to undermine the president. James Comey made a decision that wasn't even his to make when he decided he wasn't going to charge Hillary Clinton because he said there was no intent on Mrs. Clinton's part to do what she did. Well, that's irrelevant because the statute didn't require intent. The statute required negligence. Intent requires advanced forethought and a higher level of consciousness and a different level of mental culpability. Negligence doesn't require any of those things. So it was not James Comey's place to say, 
Well, there was no intent. Therefore, the statute that says all she has to do is be negligent doesn't apply. That was all done to protect her, all done deliberately because they all believed that she was going to win so that there would be no issue after she was elected. Once she lost, uh, their plans went awry, and now they had to try and figure out a way to discredit the man who defeated her. And in so doing, they all became willing parts of a conspiracy, and they should all be held to account. And for Durham, who was supposed to be such a pit bull, uh, bulldog investigator, to not know how to use the grand jury process to subpoena these individuals and put them in jail is pathetic, and it flies in the face of logic and is insulting to one's intelligence. We can only hope that the basis, uh, the basic facts uncovered in the report will be utilized by Congress to try and clip the wings of the FBI, because I am of the opinion in this day and age, looking over their track record and what they've done and what they haven't done in recent years, the FBI has become a worthless and useless organization that no longer serves a legitimate purpose. And the American taxpayers should not be paying for an entity that seems to be engaged more frequently in election interference and taking sides in elections than it is actually doing the duty that they were created for, which is to investigate and enforce the law. Now, I have one other topic I'd like to cover today, because it relates back to Donald Trump and the necessity for returning him to the White House. Now, as I've said on numerous other episodes, and I've said again today, everything that the left, the media, have accused Donald Trump of doing or accused Donald Trump of making up, they themselves have done. The 2020 election clearly had interference in it, both from a tremendous financial aspect with the $400 million that was spent inappropriately by Mark Zuckerberg, with the information that was suppressed from the American public regarding the Hunter Biden laptop, a false story spread, misinformation, that the laptop story itself was a fraud and nothing more than Russian disinformation designed to wrongfully hurt Joe Biden's candidacy when, in point of fact, it was an absolute true story. It was Hunter Biden's laptop. It does contain compromising and damaging information on the president and his family. And now, we have a whistleblower who's willing to substantiate that fact, and the FBI has in its possession documents which could corroborate this, which they are trying to hide behind uh, the cloak of ongoing investigation and confidential sources and so forth and so on as to the reason why they don't want it released. Now, these allegations date back to the time when Joe Biden was vice president. I find it hard to believe that that sort of activity could have taken place without the knowledge of the president at that time, Barack Obama. So this disclosure, if it comes to pass, would not only be considerably damaging to Joe Biden, it would also be considerably damaging to the legacy of Barack Obama. So 
So I'm very interested to see how this shakes out. They've had numerous subpoenas issued. They're going back and forth. But what people have to realize, at the end of the day, the FBI and all of these agencies, they may be run, uh, they may come under the executive branch and run by the executive by extension of the people he appoints, but the people he appoints to run them are in turn appointed or approved by the Senate. And Congress has an absolute sworn duty of oversight. So the FBI can't say no. And if the information is of a sensitive nature, where they can't reveal it publicly, then they can reveal it in camera, in closed-door proceedings. There are ways of doing this. This is done in trials all the time, when confidential information, when information which is needed to prove somebody's case or to prove the innocence of a defendant is of such a nature that they can't realize how they can, law enforcement or whatever, can't realize how they came into possession of it because it would compromise methods. These things are revealed to the judge known as in camera. He reads it in his chambers. Uh, it's not put out for public consumption. He makes a determination. There are ways to get this information. The FBI is engaged in obstructionism to protect the first family who has a long history of corruption. Now, all of these things, interference, misinformation, as they accuse Donald Trump of giving misinformation about the 2020 election, all of these things the Democrats have done, this hiding of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the arranging for 51 former uh, security people in the United States government to sign a letter saying, oh, this is classic uh, Russian disinformation, when it wasn't true. It was a true story about the laptop. The failure, the refusal to accept an election, which is exactly what the Democrats did in 2016, refusing to accept Donald Trump's victory, accusing him of being a Russian stooge and a Russian asset. And you have a shameless swine like Adam Schiff, who's attempting to become the next senator from California as that old bag, Dianne Feinstein, is ready to bow out. He still will not relent, even in the face of the scathing disclosures of the Durham report. He still will not relent and maintains that Donald Trump is a Russian asset. So who's the one peddling misinformation? And that's the new watchword for censorship, ladies and gentlemen, misinformation. But there's one particular person who I cannot stomach. I did a show about him a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to let you know a little follow-up. There was a man by the name of Mark Pomerantz. I told you about him. He was a former federal prosecutor. Then he left to pursue a very lucrative career in private practice. Then he came back. To the, to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan to prosecute a high-profile case because he thought it would help his efforts to become a federal judge. Fortunately, he never became one. Then he left again to go into private practice and found himself defending Sam Waxall from the M-Clone scandal. And then he was tapped 
by Cyrus Vance to do an investigation of Donald Trump's finances, which he happily agreed to do for free. And when he brought the fruits of, invest, of his investigation to Vance and Bragg, as Bragg took over, Bragg uh, declined to prosecute, saying he didn't think there was enough there. And Pomerantz, like a little child, stomped his feet, resigned, then proceeded to write a book. He wrote a book using confidential information gained in that grand jury investigation. And he opened himself up to potential criminal conduct. And after he wrote the book, a lot of pressure brought to Bragg. Bragg relents, and they announced that trumped-up indictment, no pun intended, of Donald Trump. First time in history a former president indicted. And so the Republicans in Congress wanted to get to the bottom of it. So they wanted to subpoena Mark Pomerantz to find out what he had to say. After all, he had no trouble saying everything in his book. Bragg goes to court. They prevent him from speaking. Then they go to a judge. The Republicans do. And the judge says, are you kidding me? You wrote a book. You used privileged information. Now you're trying to hide behind some type of Veil of confidentiality, no way. You have to show up. You have to testify. So he shows up. And for the second time in my lifetime that I'm aware of, a witness who was subpoenaed before a congressional committee was allowed to make an opening statement and then allowed to invoke the fifth and not say anything else. Gets his story out and then shuts up. Tells you basically to go pound sand. Now, that happened previously with Lois Lerner in the IRS scandal. And one of the congressmen pointed out that that woman abdicated her right against self-incrimination when she made an opening statement. She doesn't get to make an opening statement and then seek refuge behind the Fifth Amendment. She should have been arrested, held in contempt of Congress, and thrown in the clink until she decided to speak. Well, Mark Pomerantz pulled the same nonsense. In his opening statement, he said he was instructed by Bragg's office to maintain its claims of privilege and confidentiality in order to protect the integrity of the pending prosecution and continuing investigation of Donald Trump. I intend to honor the district attorney's requests, and I will not answer questions to which the district attorney objects. Really, Mr. Pomerantz? Were you concerned about the confidentiality and the protection of the integrity of the investigation when you wrote your book for millions of dollars? Or did the prospects of financial gain override those concerns? He also said he invoked the Fifth Amendment because even though he had written and spoken about his investigation of Trump, now that formal charges are pending, the circumstances have changed. The rule of law is best served if the merits of the case against Mr. Trump are litigated before the court that is hearing the case. This is neither the time nor place for me to answer questions about the investigation or the pending indictment. You lying sack of horse manure. You wrote that book hoping that there would be an indictment. Now you wish to hide behind it? Oh, the charges against Mr. Trump should be heard and decided by a judge. 
and a jury before politicians second-guess their merits or the decision to bring them. That's how their system works. Those who claim that they respect the rule of law should wait for the courts to do their work. You didn't wait for the courts to do their work. You didn't like it, little boy, when District Attorney Bragg said you don't have enough. But we did find some information. He did reveal that shortly before the publication of his book, that Bragg's office had warned him that he could face criminal liability if, among other things, he disclosed grand jury material or violated a provision of the New York City Charter dealing with the misuse of confidential uh, information. He said a lawyer from Bragg's office told him on April 19th that his book exposed him to criminal liability, even though Pomerantz is, quote-unquote, certain that he broke no laws. Sure, many criminals are certain that they broke no laws. Invoking the fifth, he said he wasn't required to answer questions if the answers might be used against him in a criminal prosecution, and that the amendment is a protection for all citizens, including those who have done nothing wrong. I'm sure he mentioned that. He wants to reinforce the fact that he did nothing wrong. He did everything wrong. He also said that under the rule of, he's permitted under the rule of law to refuse to answer questions that are not pertinent or, legit, or to a legitimate legislative action or that seek information that is protected by the First Amendment's guarantee of free speech. There may be other privileges, such as attorney-client or work pr- product privilege that are available for me with respect to answering certain questions. For all these reasons, I will not be answering questions that relate to my work in the DA's office, my book, or public statements I have made in the past. Five hours he got involved in this nonsense. Congressman Issa was not exaggerating when he said, quote, I have never had a more obstructive and less cooperative witness in my over 20 years in Congress. He said Pomerantz simply appeared and seemed to have taken the fifth on every single question and answered no substantive questions whatsoever. He also, quote, clearly appears unwilling to answer any questions, even about previous statements he's made. We respect someone's Fifth Amendment rights, quote, but it's very clear that this witness came with a clear intention of obstructing us. When his opening statement becomes public, I'll think we'll make it clear that he has disdain for this body and has no intention of answering any of our questions. Jordan, upon leaving the meeting room, this would be Jim Jordan, again, reading from this article, which is very well done, told reporters that he was surprised at some of the answers, but didn't provide further details because of committee rules. Pomerantz's attorney, Ted Wells, told reporters that Pomerantz's opening statement made it very clear as to what happened. Of course, the Democrat from New York said he shouldn't have been made to appear. Let me tell you something. This guy is a snake. He is a piece of crap. And I'll tell you, just as I lost respect for Trey Gowdy, when he allowed uh, Lois Lerner to make that statement, and they did nothing in Congress. I will lose respect for Jim Jordan if they don't haul this piece of shit back before Congress 
compel him to answer. Since he made an opening statement, he abdicated his right to seek refuge behind the Fifth Amendment and haul him off and sequester him and hold him in contempt indefinitely until he opens his mouth and answers. Because here's a man that had no trouble revealing things that he was prohibited from revealing, revealing things that he had no business revealing, revealing things that he did deliberately to damage Donald Trump, all when financial gain was involved for himself and his own self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. And now, now when he's before Congress under a subpoena and feels the potential heat of a prosecution, suddenly he is gripped with a crisis of conscience. And he has no intention of participating in what he calls a theatrical show. He is a theatrical show. His book is a theatrical show. He's a pompous buffoon with the ego the size of a helium balloon, which I hope will soon be deflated in an unceremonious fashion. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury. Thank you.